Sometimes churches will have little mottos or slogans which try and describe what they're about. One church that I was part of in the past had the slogan, God-centred, people-focused, gospel-driven. Another church that I was part of had the slogan, proclaiming Jesus Christ the King. Uh, And I like both of those. Uh, They sum up in a nutshell what the church is about. Another slogan which one of our sister churches in Ireland has is having hope in Christ, sharing hope in Christ. Having hope and sharing hope. And again, I think that's a very helpful description of what a church is, or at least what a church should be. Uh, First and foremost, uh, the church is a gathering together of those who have hope in Christ. But if we really do have hope in Christ, then that's not something we're going to keep to ourselves. And in fact, this is a hope that we are specifically called to take out into a world without hope. But sadly, there are churches where either one or both of these things are missing. There are many churches in Scotland where people gather together out of tradition or because they think it's a good thing to do. But neither those in the pews or the one in the pulpit have genuine hope in Christ And so because they don't have any hope themselves, they don't have anything to offer their communities. They don't have any hope and so they have nothing to share. But there are other churches which do understand and believe the gospel. But somewhere along the line they've lost the vision for sharing that hope with the communities God has placed them in. Or they feel that there is such apathy and disinterest out there that there's no point. And so they might have hope, but they don't share hope. But surely we want both these things to be true of us as a church. Uh, We want to have hope and we want to share hope. After all, that's what we see in 1 Peter 3.15. Uh, Peter talks there in chapter 3 verse 15 about the hope that is within you. Uh, That is having hope. And he also talks about giving an answer or making a defence to those who ask. Uh, And that is sharing hope. Uh, And these two things will be our two headings this morning as we come to think of the subject of witnessing or evangelising. So firstly this morning, having hope, having hope, and that's page two for Donna, having hope. Uh, A few months ago, our our sister congregation in Airdrie held some special services. We were were praying for them here. Uh, Their topic was hope for Airdrie. Uh, One man in the community was contemplating taking his own life when he received the leaflets. But instead he came to church and heard the Bible's message of hope. And hope really is central to the Christian faith. The Apostle Paul, when he wants to highlight three 
key virtues, uh, three fundamental Christian virtues. He chooses faith, hope and love. In the third verse of First Peter, so chapter 1 verse 3, after his introduction, Peter begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And that tells us two things. The first thing it tells us is that true Christianity involves being born again. Which we'll come back to a little bit later on. And the second thing is that when we become Christians, we are born again to a living hope. And it's important to say right at the beginning that Christian hope is very different from the way we generally use the word hope. I might hope for a white Christmas or hope for Stranraer to get promoted back into League One. But while I hope for these things, I don't have a, a huge amount of confidence that either of them will happen. But Christian hope is different. It's the rock solid certainty that our sins are forgiven and that heaven is waiting for us and nothing anyone can do to us can take that from us. And that's because Christian hope is based on something that has already happened. Christian hope is based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in place of his people. And if Jesus has been raised, then we will be raised too. One flows as a direct result from the other. That is the Christian hope. So do you have that hope this morning? So many people, when you ask them if they'll get to heaven, they say, well, I hope so. But they, they're, not, they're not using hope the way the Bible uses the word hope. Uh, they're using the word hope in the sense that they, they would like to, but they're not sure. And I wonder, is that your answer this morning? If I ask you, are you... Are you going to go to heaven when you die? Would you say, well, I hope so. Because actually for me, that answer sets the alarm bells ringing. Because if someone is, is just hoping that they'll go to heaven, they're usually hoping that they've done enough, which they can never do. We can never do. But if someone is trusting in Jesus, then they can be absolutely certain. Not because they've done enough, but because he has. And if you don't have this sure and certain hope this morning, do you want it? Do you want it? Because you can have it. It's being offered to you today. And if you do want it, and I trust you do want it this morning, look who it's for in verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3, it's for those who have been born again. It's only possible to have this living hope if you've been born again to it. Sometimes people will talk about born again Christians as if they were a special category of Christian. As if it's possible to be a Christian without being born again. 
as if it's possible to be a Christian by being born in a Christian country or, or being baptised in a Christian church or, or being a member of a Christian church uh, but without being born again. But according to the Bible, there aren't these two levels of Christians. According to the Bible, according to Jesus himself, there's no such thing as a Christian who hasn't been born again. Peter, here he's just echoing words that he had heard from the mouth of the Lord Jesus. Jesus had said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God and so if you're not born again, you can't have that living hope. Being born again is essential. Jesus said so, uh, and Peter said so. People have this idea that, that Peter will be the one at the, the, the pearly gates of heaven asking people why they should be let in. But if that really did turn out to be Peter's job, the one question that he would be asking would be, are you born again? Because without being born again, there is no entrance into heaven. So if this being born again is so vital, what is it? Well, it's not actually something that we do but it's rather something God does to us. Just like we didn't have any say in being born the first time, Jesus said, you must be born again. But, but that is not a command. It is a statement of fact. It describes what must happen to someone. It, it describes uh, the Holy Spirit coming and working in our lives to give us the desire and ability to repent and believe the gospel. Uh, and that is a command. Uh, repent and believe is a command. Uh, don't hear, well, being born again, it, it's not something that, that, that you can do and think, well, well, there's nothing I can do because uh, being born again is a command. Jesus first, uh, or, or repenting and believing are commands. Jesus' first recorded words in Mark's gospel are repent and believe in the gospel. So have you done that? Uh, have you seen yourself not just as someone who is flawed, but as someone who by nature and practice is a, a rebel against God, the God who made you? And have you turned from that sin to God, from your, your sinful way of living, from your sinful way of thinking, with yourself at the centre uh, and coming to, to, to reorientate the world with God at the centre? And have you... Uh, Put your trust not in your good works, but in the death of Jesus on the cross. Because he is your only hope. And he is a sure and certain hope. Uh, because if you have done that, then you have this living hope. And if you truly have been born again, what will the evidence of that be? Well, part of the evidence is that you will be a hope-filled and a joy-filled person. You will have a, a hope and a joy that circumstances can't snuff out. This hope makes Peter nearly sing for joy at the start of this letter. 
verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The believers he was writing this letter to were facing suffering, as we see from verse 6 of chapter 1. Now grieved by various trials. If you were to write a letter or an email to a, a believer who was suffering, how would you start it off? I would probably begin, dear, so and so. I'm so sorry to hear that you're suffering. But Peter starts with their hope. He starts, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he is confident that they have this hope. The book of Acts tells us about Paul and Silas who were beaten and thrown into prison with their feet fastened in stocks. And what do we find them doing a few hours later? Singing praise to God. Not, not bemoaning how they had ended up in that situation. Not talking about their rights. Not saying, don't they know that, that I, Paul, have a, have a right as a Roman citizen? No, we find them singing praise to God. What explains that? Only the fact that they've been born again. And, and if you do have this living hope this morning, is it being seen in your living a hope-filled life? Our suffering as Christians, it's nothing compared to being thrown in a Roman prison. But do we have a hope and a joy despite our circumstances? If you do, then give thanks to God for his grace. Because as we'll come to see now in our second point, that in itself will be a powerful witness to a watching world. So firstly, this morning, having hope. Do you have this hope? Because that is the foundation for sharing hope. Firstly, having hope. Secondly, sharing hope. Page four for Donna, page four. For this second point, we're we're turning over to look uh, particularly at chapter three, verses 15 and 16. Uh, And uh, we're going to think not primarily of the role of of the church as a whole in in sharing the gospel or, or of ministers in sharing the gospel, but the role of normal individual Christians. I wonder what comes into your mind when you even hear that phrase, sharing the gospel. Do you think of missionaries going to faraway countries? Do you think of those closer to home handing out tracts and knocking on people's doors? Well, well, certainly we need missionaries to go to other countries and preach the gospel. And we need here missionaries to, to come here and preach the gospel. And there's a place for, for handing out tracts and knocking on doors. But most Christians aren't missionaries. Most Christians don't go around handing out tracts and knocking on people's doors. But sharing the gospel is for everyone. Perhaps you hear that and think, well, I would find it very hard to, to start a conversation about Jesus with someone And most Christians would. But actually, I'm not sure if God expects that to be the main way that you share the gospel. 
Yes, you're expected to be able to, to talk simply about your faith if others ask you about it. And you are to live and speak in such a way that, that invites those questions. But as we've seen in previous weeks, the church is a body where everyone has different gifts that are to be used in different ways. And the Great Commission, our call to take the gospel to the nations of the world, that isn't given to, to any one individual. It's given to the church as a whole. And the church as a whole is to be proactive about evangelism. Ministers and elders are to be looking at their communities and thinking, how best can we reach people here with the gospel? When a presbytery meets, uh, made up of ministers and elders from different churches, they should be conscious of, of communities in their nation without gospel preaching churches and seeing what they can do under God to change that. Churches, uh, as churches, are to be proactive about taking out the gospel. And I don't want to say here that ordinary church members aren't to be proactive about sharing the gospel. Because there is lots of scope to be proactive uh, for all of us in terms of building up relationships with non-Christians and having them round for dinner, in creating situations where conversations about the gospel can arise. Uh, th there are ways that we can all be, be proactive about trying to create opportunities to share the gospel or, or develop relationships in, in which the gospel can be shared. Uh, but for most people in the church, your witnessing to others will be more reactive than proactive. In the church, you will have some who are gifted at starting conversations about Jesus from scratch with complete strangers. But that's not most people. Uh, for most of God's people, our opportunities will come as part of our normal, everyday relationship with people. As they notice something different about us. About how we react to situations differently from, from how those around us do. Uh, about how our priorities are different from the world's priorities. And in light of those things, they'll ask questions. And in a way, that's actually harder than, than just knocking on someone's door because people who know you know what you're actually like. Whereas if you just knock on, on a random door, the, the person behind it has no idea what your character is like. Whatever you might say to them, it's not built on anything that they can know about you. And so by and large, if we're going to have opportunities with those around us, it will flow from living consistent, godly lives. And that's the emphasis here in 1 Peter 3.15. It's about having a hope within you that is so clear and which impacts your life in such obvious ways that people will ask you about it and that's when you will have the opportunity to speak about your faith and your saviour verse 15 always being prepared to make an offence or, or give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you when we hear the word evangelism 
we perhaps think of something that we need special training for. And there's undoubtedly a place in thinking about uh, the best strategy or or thinking through common uh, objections and questions people might have. And yet evangelism is first and foremost about our hearts, uh, not our methods. It's about our hearts, not our methods. It's about what we value most. When someone gets engaged to be married, you don't have to force them to talk about their fiancé. Any chance they get, they'll be talking about the, about the other person, about their plans for their wedding, about their plans for their life together. Somehow the conversation always manages to get turned round to these things. We talk about what we're excited about. And so sharing hope should simply be the natural overflow of having hope. And to flesh this out a bit more, for the rest of our time this morning, we're going to look at three principles for sharing hope taken from the book Love Your Church. Those three principles are are practical goodness, Christ-centred reverence and daily readiness. Uh, I thought they were helpful, so on to the second point. We'll take each briefly in turn. And the first one is practical goodness. That's page six. Practical goodness. Most unbelievers aren't just going to get up one Sunday morning and decide to go to church. Now that could happen. Uh, Perhaps it has even happened to some here. God can stir anyone at any time. Perhaps a crisis will come in someone's life and they will begin to seek God. But most of the time, what it is that will stir the interest of an unbeliever, it's not that they'll just get up one day and decide. It's not that they'll receive a leaflet inviting them and they'll get it and come, though some do. Most of the time, what will stir the interest in an unbeliever is seeing something different about the lives of Christians they know. Different outward behaviour, yes, anyone can can behave in a certain way outwardly, but outward behaviour that flows from an inner hope. The hope that verse 15 talks about here is a hope that shines out clearly and that people around us will see. Yes, verse 16, some will revile our good behaviour in Christ, and don't we know that all too well? But for others, that same good behaviour in Christ will give them pause for thought. Perhaps it will even stop them in their tracks. As someone has put it, Peter's emphasis is on living a life of good deeds before a watching world. And this can be quite compelling. In other words, Peter's model for getting an opportunity to speak about the gospel is to live an attractive life under the Lordship of Christ that provokes questions. Live an attractive life under the Lordship of Christ that provokes questions. Think of the sort of news headlines we've been having over the past few years, from one crisis to another. And do you know what will stand out in the face of that? When there are so many things that we could be anxious about, So many things that people are anxious about. When there are so many things we could be up in arms about. Things that people around us are up in arms about. 
what will really stand out are people who are joyful, gentle, loving and peaceful. In other words, people who are filled with the fruit of the Spirit. Those characteristics which the Holy Spirit produces in the lives of God's people. We're commanded in Colossians 4 verse 5 to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Uh, to live it in such a way that we're conscious that unbelievers are watching us. And that involves speaking graciously. Our lives as professing Christians can either push people further away from the gospel or draw them towards it. So we're to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. So if we want to live if we want to be faithful witnesses for Christ, the first step is, is living lives of practical goodness. Because if we do, we will immediately stand out. Some will attack us for it because their consciences will be pricked, but others will be attracted by it. So, practical goodness. The second principle is Christ-centered reverence. Page 7, Christ-centered reverence. Verse 15 begins, In your hearts honour Christ the Lord as holy. And again, this is key if we're going to be faithful witnesses for Jesus Christ. Because what's the alternative? The alternative at the end of verse 14 is to be in fear of those around us. To be consumed by what others think of us. But the cure for that sort of crippling, unhealthy fear isn't to try and harden our hearts towards others, but rather to try and soften our hearts towards God. The cure for fear of man is a healthy fear of God. In your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy. In fact, the word respect at the end of verse 15 is literally the word fear. Uh, and so it might actually be talking first and foremost about our attitude to God, which then impacts how we speak to those who ask us questions. But either way, when opportunities do arise for us to, to speak about our faith, fear of man will keep us quiet, uh, but fear of God will loosen our tongues. The fact that we're told to do this with gentleness tells us that some of those questions aren't going to be polite and respectful. Sometimes, of course, silence isn't the cowardly option. The book of Proverbs tells us not to answer a fool according to his folly. Our Lord warns us about casting pearls before swine. But it, it would be easy to convince ourselves that that is what we're doing when we're really just motivated by a desire to keep our heads down. But if we remember the holiness and glory of the Lord, it will help us see others in proper perspective. And it will also remind us that at times loving people involves saying things when everything in us wants to keep silent. At times loving people involves saying things when everything in us wants to keep silent. So practical goodness, Christ-centered reverence. Thirdly and finally, daily readiness. Daily readiness. 
If you were ever in the Scouts, you'll know that the, the Scouts' motto is be prepared. And that's essentially what Peter says here in verse 15, always being prepared to answer anyone. If we think of evangelism as an activity that we do for say an hour a week, then it would be easy to think of the rest of the week as a time when we're not on duty because we've ticked the evangelism box for that week. But actually what we're called to here is something more demanding than anything that can be limited to a specific time or even a specific phase of our lives. Uh, the, the, the Mormons are around at the moment and they do, they do 18 months or two years of missionary service. But then it's done. But, but for, for the Christian, this is a lifestyle. It's not something that we do for, for a year or two or, and tick that box. It's not something we do uh, for, for, for a week, a year, and that's us. Rather, it's about always being prepared, always being prepared to speak about our hope, always ready to speak about Jesus. But often we're caught off guard, aren't we? The, the opportunity comes and, and we can think later about what we could have said, what we should have said, but, but the opportunity comes and it's gone and we say nothing. Surely one thing that would help us in those situations, uh, help us to be ready, is to pray about those situations before we go into them. To pray for the specific group of people that we know we're going to be with, that God would give us opportunities uh, to be regularly praying for these people. And if we do that, well, well yes, we can still be taken off guard, but, but we're, we're less likely to be so. If we're going into the situation with a prayerful intentionality uh, to take opportunities to speak about Jesus. If, we, if we've thought about what, what even the, the conversations, uh, topic of conversations might be given what's in the news and, 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 and think how, how it could be turned around to the gospel. And again, being prepared, it doesn't mean that, that we have some sort of, of pre-planned evangelistic strategy. It's been pointed out that Jesus never used one canned presentation. He knew each person individually and addressed them individually. Nor, as we've said, does it need special training. As someone has said, a new Christian with no formal theological training can radiate with contagious Christian hope. That's all we need to do. And yeah, that's the, that's the big challenge, isn't it? It's radiating with contagious Christian hope. And being ready to speak about the reason for that hope. And that really brings us back to the beginning again. And so we'll end today where we began. Sharing hope in Christ means having hope in Christ if the idea of taking opportunities to speak to others about this hope and even trying to create those opportunities, if that all sounds totally foreign or if it sounds like something that we might have done in our younger days at one point in our life when we were more enthusiastic but not now, then our greatest need is to make sure that we have this hope in Christ and make sure that that living hope is still living. And if it has grown cold, to stir the embers by focusing on the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
Words which we will hear over the next few weeks are, Come, let us adore him. And only when we discover or rediscover what it is to adore the Lord Jesus Christ will we be effective witnesses for him. Amen. Well, we'll close today by singing a psalm about witnessing for Christ without shame. Psalm 119, part 6. Psalm 119, part 6 on page 300. So the page number down at the bottom is, is number 300. It's part 6 of Psalm 119. Uh, the end of verse 3 it talks about having hope. Uh, for in the ordinances that are yours I hope always so having hope Uh, and then verse 5 talks about sharing hope I'll to your statutes witness give without shame in king's sight and again in the second half of the verse it flows from a, a love and delight in God and in his ways now many of us may not have the opportunity to witness before kings none of us probably will but we are always to be ready to take every opportunity to speak to those who God in his providence brings us into contact with so Psalm 119 part 6 I will stand to sing praise